Thanks for joining me again, Simone. We are talking about step 10 of the 12-step process for change management. Um, I guess this this step's really around the concept of getting into the weeds and, and understanding some of the tactical things that you do to implement these um, any particular change. So t- tell us about uh, this, this these moves that you made to um, for both licensing and uh, managed accounts. Where, where did it start from you and, and how do you actually implement this sort of stuff? So for us, it's part of bringing in people to support the process. So with the AFSL, it was really important to us that we had a legal team, a compliance team, a para planning team, and um, that we were able to rely on them for the various pieces that, that we needed to deliver. So there's two responsible managers in our, in our business, and we oversaw the whole project, obviously, but it was about bringing in experts to help us execute on things properly so it was certainly not wanting to change and I would encourage everyone to to dispel the fact that you will save money by starting up your own license in fact we invested heavily in the business at that point to make sure that we had the right structures the right people giving us advice the right person applying for the license building the policies and procedures and then having a way to to manage that ongoing ourselves Yep. So definitely, uh, that's the first tip: resource up, um, yes. sort of uh, invest in invest in the business itself. Don't try and do everything yourself. No, no, definitely not. And talk us through the, um, the the process. Once you you know you obviously have to have a strong investment philosophy or a belief around what you're doing, and you have to. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, in previous conversations around the the concept of um, you know using MDA, SMA, or industry funds depending on the mm-hmm. client. How did you create that structure and then work out who is going to be best and what? Yeah, we spend a lot of time on this, and in fact, we're always um, building and evolving. We're still tweaking it. But one of the decisions we needed to make was: did we want an annex wealth? managed account did we want it branded annex wealth and we decided that we didn't want that because it was um i suppose going against our belief that that we're focused on goals and strategic advice we didn't want it branded in that way so we made that sort of core decision from there it was about understanding of the clients that we have because we have around 530 client groups and there's you know um multiple clients within that but at a client group level um, about that number so it was about is this going to be right for all of our clients um, in terms of a uh, MDA solution as an example now it turns out that it's right for 50% of our clients because we've transitioned half of our client base to that solution so there's certainly other client segments that it's not necessarily right for but in that respect, it was important to us to build out, well, then what, what is right for this kind of client group? So based on this client category at this advice stage, at this life stage, what is it that they're, that they're looking for and is going to be suitable to them? So we've, we've gone through a whole process and that's at an investment committee level. So the head of our internal investment committee has undertaken that analysis to understand that if we're looking at a smaller account balance with these type of needs, very fee sensitive, what are our solutions that we have? And we felt that that type of guidance was important to give advisors so that we're following the same process, no matter whether we're looking at an MDA, an SMA, an industry fund, it starts with the client uncovering what they need and then looking at what's the best available in the market. And this is why we're giving these couple of solutions our tick for these reasons and then making sure that we're constantly you know reviewing that and updating that and making not being afraid to make changes where there's a new um a new product on the market where there's something that's changed not being afraid to to go back and and tweak that yeah i'd I'd imagine having a fairly clear structure around that from a both you know for compliance rm point of view is is pretty is is obviously safe um but from an, an advisor point of view it probably feels like that takes the pressure off them uh, with the choice, it's like, no, that we have a system and you fit here and so that you're definitely in that bucket. Definitely. It gives them guidance and gives them support, um, gives them the confidence that they need, that all of that uh, vetting has been has been completed. And also for us looking to bring in new advisors to our business to be able to give them a framework and say, this is the Annex Wealth way of doing things. This is this is the, the guidance that you need and the support that you need to get things to, to get things right. Yep. And when you come up with that framework and structure, um, there's obviously a lot of work involved in that. Who who helped you do that? 
So started with um, the head of our investment committee who was, um, you know, started the, the business with me back in 2015. So he owned the project, but he brought in, into it all different sorts of um, stakeholders in our business. So we looked at um, the platform provider, gave us a lot of insights into into what's um, happening in the marketplace. We looked at external um, providers such as Core Data, these kind of places that, that look at what's happening and giving us a lot of statistics around that. Um, and then just a lot of research on the ground with various um, contacts that we had in the industry, working at different fund managers and bringing that all together and also looking at external research houses, including Morningstar and, and Lonsec. That was important to us as well. Yeah, wow, that sounds. Uh, I, I love the I love the term you used to own the project. Um, obviously, it was a project. Um, it was owned by somebody and and um, and and structured that way and mm-hmm. pulled all the research together to make a logical decision. Yes. Fantastic. Yes, that's right. Uh, thanks so much for catching up in this particular section. We look forward to catching you in step eleven. Dave, thanks for joining us again. We are at step 10 of our change management process, where we start getting into into the the tactics a little bit and and the how to and those sorts of things. And um, we mentioned before, we had a conversation before, before around having an understanding of your value proposition and investment philosophy. But then I guess the next step off the back of that is to actually then working out, you know, how do you implement that? Why, how do you choose a structure? What do you choose? Why do you choose it? All those sorts of things. What was what was your journey like? Yeah, and this is where trying to understand the differences and the nuances between all these different structures is really important. There's managed accounts, but then Within managed accounts, you've got MDAs and you've got SMAs uh, as well. So, I guess the clear distinction is that an MDA is a service, uh, and we really do, we are a service orientated practice and business. So, the MDA really resonated with us that it was a service. Also, the barriers to entry in terms of if we wanted to build a particular style of portfolio, you know, a client could have a really ethical tilt or an ESG focus or whatever it might be. We could create an investment program for those clients, you know, with $10 million as an example. If you wanted to build a financial product um, that was tailored to that uh, particular group of clients, you know, the threshold is extremely high, right? And we just simply don't have that. Um, So, um, uh, that, that figure I, I plucked out of the air, by the way, but the, the point was uh, the, the barriers to, to create something and tailor something to the client is quite low within the MDA environment. And SMA obviously is a financial product. Again, that, that's there's nothing wrong with that and they're perfectly fine and they give fantastic outcomes. And what we do like about SMAs is the transparency and the, the see-through, the look-through. Um but it, it still is a financial product and we, we, we do like the whole accountability to our business um, and if we can just tie it back to that, um, that's probably the key driver why we went down the MDA path. And, and uh, just while we're on that, talk to me about branding um, around what you did around branding with your MDA. Yeah, so, so we branding-wise, uh, it was nothing too sophisticated. It was our business name followed by, uh, you know, the type of portfolio it, it is. So, we wanted to make it, not to confuse the client, but we did want it to be clear that um, uh, the portfolios were delivered by us um, and that we were actively um, managing um, and making our consultants accountable um, to the stated mandates. Um, and the great thing is that uh, the, the naming conventions filter through f- to a product level, right? So on the platform, you can see our name there. Um, on their phones, they can see our name there. So all those things ca- try to, you know, n- not only describes what we're doing, but also um, enhances our brand as well. Yep, yep, sure. And now obviously one to talk about not, you know the the concept that not every client fits everything, right? Well, even even if you're dealing in uh, such as sharp niches as you are, there's still going to be um, clients that don't fit one or fit the other better. Um, how did you go about that process then and go right? Well, this type of client's going to be good here, and this type of client's going to be good there. Yeah, and look, it, it all boils down to our um, conversations, right? And ensuring that um, from a best interest perspective, um, we don't want to introduce something that the client might deem too complicated, right? Uh, so we're extremely mindful of that. Um, there's got to be a clear reason why they're using it. 
Um, so do they want something that is a bit more active for starters, right? And two, are they time poor? You know, and can they implement these changes themselves? And if some of these things are no, well, then this is where the service is really of benefit to the client. But some people um, are extremely capable of doing certain things themselves or they don't understand the structure. Um, So we don't want to um, roll everything out to everyone. Um, It's only to um, where there's a clear best interest narrative there. So did you end up um, spending some time creating a question set then? Yeah, that's right. It's not uh, a checklist where we just go, you know, just ask standard questions. It's more to help develop conversation. So it's extremely natural, um, not forced, but uh, we we just want to get to the bottom of what our clients' needs are and what the pain points are and trying to figure out, you know, what service is appropriate. So um, the MDA is typically our premium service. You know, we've got, you know, basic services as well where we will not um, go down that um, into that space. Yep, and, and I guess that also helps with if you've got a structure in place, you, it helps with as you bring advisors on or new staff start and everyone can understand the structure. Exactly. And so just, yeah, t- touching on that, we, we obviously – look, we, we do have a, a documented process around, you know, who it's appropriate for or not. But at the same time, we don't want to be too prescriptive because uh, our advisors are highly skilled themselves and they can make a distinction as to what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. So we don't want to be too prescriptive there. We just want to arm them with as many tools and um, collateral as possible to make an informed decision themselves. Yep. And just take us through the, the execution process, I guess. It's, um, did that add efficiency to the business? Is it, uh, where, where does that sit in this, in this scheme of things around the actual implementation and the changes and the work involved? Yeah, extremely. So, you know, p- part of our business um, was, uh, I guess we'll call it the, the old world for, back of a, for lack of a better term, in the sense where you, you might have a platform and you're selecting funds and you stick to a model um, and then you update that at your annual review, right? Um, when you needed to, w- when something needs to be changed, the ability to change that is extremely time-consuming, right? Not to mention by the time you get to the 100th client, three months have maybe passed and arguably it's too late, right, when that best idea hasn't been rolled out. So we've created so many efficiencies where our best ideas are implemented immediately and that's where that success rate, we spoke about the 65% kind of comes from because you could have a really good idea, but if you're not quick enough or timely enough to implement it, um, then that good idea can be wasted. Um, and we do have a really good white paper on that and the impact of those delayed investment decisions. But So, so we did have that in our business and that's created enormous efficiencies there. So um, we feel like we're still on that journey, um, but we feel that we're getting better and better each day uh, as a result of uh, implementing this structure. Hey, Mel, thanks so much for joining us again. In this particular part of the change process, we, I, I want to get a little bit deeper into some of the nitty gritty around how do you work out what you, we're going to do? You know, like what's the what's the structure we want to use, you know, how does that fit with our investment philosophy or beliefs? And um, so, so when it comes to, I guess, the, the rubber hitting the road, what, what are you seeing? Yeah. Um, I think what I see is people tend to have a preconceived idea on the type of structure, um, potentially without doing enough DD into why that specific structure. So I think deciding on the investment philosophy and the investment partner is a really key thing. I actually think the structure is potentially a, a second step because you achieve mostly the outcome. You can do it in, in different ways with both of these vehicles. It will depend on your platform provider, um, how your investment partner works. With technology where it is, you can typically do both. With an MDA, you need this on your license, but there are also third-party MDA providers that are phenomenal and you don't have to put that on your license. You might decide to put it on your license. Um, you might decide to do SMAs. And you might also decide that you want an SMA, what we call off the shelf versus on the shelf. So 
investment managers put their best ideas together in a portfolio that you can already just buy. Um, but you might decide that you want a bespoke SMA. Now that's a larger undertaking. And and I guess there's a lot of decisions to be made and this could be a little bit confusing and confronting too. And and this is again a, a process of just asking lots of questions and trying to work stuff out and 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 yeah. not giving up. Honestly, as simple as Googling like managed account structures, there's videos managed account 101. Like what is an MDA versus an SMA? Don't let the jargon fool you. Um, and again, ask us, ask every single one of your um, referral networks, your stakeholders, your platforms, your investment partners, everybody will be able to take you through this as well. What isn't, isn't possible and the pros and cons of each here. Yep. So asking around that structure is really key, but don't let the jargon overwhelm you. Again, once you get your toe in a little bit, it's a lot easier than you think. Tom, thanks for joining us again in step 10 of our 12-step process. Uh, look, I, I think in this step, we really need to get into the the nitty-gritty, into the weeds, into the into the tactical, into the how to implement the, this in the first place. Uh, we've been talking a lot, lot about the concept, but let's get into the how do advisors actually go through and, and put this in place. Sounds good. So let's start with uh, let's start, I guess, with the uh, you know they've, they've got the strong philosophy, uh, an investment philosophy, a belief in place. Um, but what do they need to do then to actually adopt it? So there's a number of different structures in the market. So there's a managed discretionary account or separately managed account, MDA or SMA, are the two major structures that are available. Um, and so, firstly, you need to decide which one you, you're going to adopt. Uh, MDA. I think presents a little more like a service. It's an investment program with, embedded within a statement of advice. And so, again, depending on your other considerations around structure and platform, the ability to deliver it in a way that doesn't seem that different to the existing advice process can be powerful uh, and help the transition process. Uh, SMA, uh, it's often issued, you know, it's a PDS. It's a, it's a managed investment scheme and it's issued generally by one of the major platforms. And so... Um, you know, you can go to the platform and, and have an SMA or, a co- or this is in the build your own sort of scenario. There are many SMAs that you can buy straight off the shelf. They won't have your advice practices brand on them. They will have, you know, the brand of the, the investment partner such as Drummond. Uh, however, you know, that may be a good first step for, for many practices or smaller practices looking to adopt. Okay. So this is a, this is a really, really uh, integral part of it choosing one or the other or can you choose both you can choose both uh, i think in the end you need to make a decision we, we find conviction is really important here so conviction in the investment philosophy that you adopt and even if that's adopting our investment philosophy understanding it and having conviction in it having conviction in the structure having conviction in the platform really believing that the, the total solution you're presenting to your clients is the best that you can best that you can be and um, I think that resonates with the clients the clients buy into that if you don't really understand whether it should be MDMA MDA or SMA if you don't really understand which platform um, you know I think that that gets lost in the conversation and the clients don't buy into your conviction so in the end some of these considerations don't matter it's just it's a managed account it's a better it's a better solution it's a it's a holistic investment solution tends to be more important than which structure or which plat- platform necessarily. And what are some of the big considerations for um, advisors making the decision? What, what do they, what are the, some of the things that they hang their head on when it comes to that choice? Uh, the perception around the product and this, and often the brand. So particularly for larger practices, so north of a hundred million dollars, the ability to, to white label that they still irrespective of whether they have the ultimate decision making, they want something that they can take to their clients and own as their own. Uh, and so the white labeling is important. Uh, and you know, the, the number of different, you know, features and functions, I guess, that come around um, the different types of portfolios. So flexibility within the mandates, um, you know, is, is an important consideration. And sometimes in MDA, there's more flexibility there is in SMA, which can be more rigid. Yep. Do you see a certain size of firm going one way or the other? We, we're pretty, I think they're partly driven by the platform and partly our own is that we see, you know, sub $100 million practices they're not really at a scale to to build something from scratch um, there is a lot of upfront legal and operational work that's involved in that that has a cost uh, and so you know under 100 million you should be thinking about 
adopting like a great solution off the shelf. Um, whereas over 100 million, uh, you can start to think about potentially having some say in the design of that, um, but also the ability to put your brand, it, uh, brand on the solution, if you will, white label the solution. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess licensing can often have an effect on it too. Um, licensing, even things like professional identity could have a, a say in this. That's right, as well as licensee. So if you're independent, obviously you can choose, but different licensees we find in the market have different preferences around structure and, and the way that it's delivered as well. And so uh, you, you may have to lean one way or the other depending on the view of your licensee. Yeah. And what about the um, inside the practice, the level of the client, whether they're, you know, sort of, you know, mums and dads, high net worth, ultra high net worth, that obviously has a say in, in, in which direction an advisor might go? It does. It's actually, I think, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier around some of the misconceptions, but I think that in the end, people think that high net worth clients want really tailored portfolios and so that often the managed account is just suitable for their low balance clients because they're thinking about cost to serve and efficiency. So I'll use a managed account for the lower lower tier of my client base and I'll stick to, you know, tailoring bespoke portfolios for the higher end of my client base. And, and we sort of say, well, really, is that the right way? Because in our view, the best 70-30 portfolio that you can have with best ideas should be suitable from the wealthiest client through to the, the smallest client um, best ideas are best ideas. And so, you know, potentially there's ways of sort of, you know, segmenting the client base and, and delivering slightly different service models. And so maybe with your, you know, high net worth clients, you may incorporate some satellite opportunities. Maybe there's, you know, some other growth investments or wholesale investments that you can offer to them. But really with the managed account, the, the best 70-30 portfolio, for example, sitting at the core of that solution. And, and so, again, it comes back to, adopting a consistent philosophy across your business and setting the, the market narrative and, and the communication strategy. If you segment your client base and think that, you know, the managed account is only going to be suitable for, you know, the bottom 25% or 50%, then again, you're still needing to come up with a, a bespoke way of managing the other half of your business and you're kind of missing the whole point. What we're really trying to do is transform the way in which you deliver investments to your whole practice and deliver consistent communications from your practice to all of your clients that, that apply equally. And I think that's you know, comes back to the business objectives and, and what's best practice. Yep. Now, doing that, obviously, there's a bit of work in, 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 in investment and changing that, well, as you said earlier, the, um, you know, SOAs and things like that. So this, this, to me, sounds like it's a really busy 12 months. You know, what's the expectations around for advisors around you know, what the actual practical implementation process is going to take within the business? Is it, is it like taking one step back to take two steps forward or is it like you know, they have to scale up their, their, uh, their practice? It's interesting. I think the first quarter, it certainly feels like one step back, two steps forward, and that is just ironing out the process. And partly it's, you know, understanding and getting better at the conversations with the clients. But really after, beyond that, once the power planning team or, you know, support team and the advisors uh, are up to speed and having the conversations, it is it can be rolled out effectively over a year uh, on the regular, you know, client reporting cycle, or review cycle, if you will. Really, in the end, uh, you're going to have to continue to deliver on the next 12 months a number of statement of advices, a number of records of advice. And so if you're doing that, you may as well be delivering a statement of advice that actually results in you know, a material change um, for, your, for your client and for your business. Because if you don't do it this year, next year, you're still going to be producing the same advice documents. Fast forward 12 months, having done the hard work, you're going to be going into reviews producing a lot less ROAs, a lot less SOAs, uh, and you will get the efficiency dividend from review one. And so, yes, sure, there's a little bit of work, but usually, like all these things, it's we find it's just in the beginning. It's just ironing out, you know, some of the issues and, and getting everyone up to speed and understanding. And then after that, we, we tend to see a real acceleration in the adoption um, throughout the practice. On to step 11 now, where we talk about the client service uh, enhancements. Um, we're obviously talking about client experience here. This is a big part we've talked about uh, in the previous sections, the, the structure and the advice, but we really want to get into the, you know, what's in it for the client um, and what they get out of it. Of, of course, uh, step 11, we're in the process. We've sort of made the decision. We've moved, we've worked out how, um, but talk to us about the, 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 the relationship with the client um, and, and their thoughts and feelings. 
Sure. It, it is a big change for clients to move from, you know, sitting with an advisor and it's and the advisor seeking permission to make an investment change versus an investment change happening and them finding out after the fact. So we were very conscious of this when building the new investment service and we 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 make sure that clients are communicated in a very timely manner so that when changes happen, they're notified on the same day so that they're given that benefit of the insight into why things are happening and then it also gives them a sense of control. And information, I suppose, the more information they have, the more control they feel the advisor has and they're partnering, you know, obviously partnering with the advisor to get the outcome. So we were conscious of that change that, that clients may feel as though, hang on, I was in control of these decisions and now they're just happening. But our experience and feedback from clients has been quite opposite to that in that they feel very informed. It was important to us that the communication from the portfolio manager was quite on point and and, and they're very open to us giving them feedback about what clients want to hear. But breaking down the jargon and explaining to clients this move has been made for these reasons and it's been executed was quite was quite important. Yeah, it feel, it feels to me like uh, if I put my client hat on, that you know, keeping them informed is one thing. But um, the, I guess the the feeling is of of inclusion of them being included in the the decisions. Yes, it's been made and it's been implemented. But they get told straight away, so they're feeling like they're included in the in the conversation as it happens. Definitely, and part of the the benefit of the managed account is that execution is is happening straight away. So there's a sense of Things have happened, things are shifting, and now we're executing. And it, it comes back to the point around the inefficiencies that the client used to experience in terms of how that was rolled out to when things are identified, they happen reasonably quickly. Yeah, I think that that has helped the clients to feel comfortable. And this, again, forms part of one of the you know, best ideas at the time. Yes, that's right. And there's no real surprises for clients once you get on that 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 wheel of communication and we really make sure we have a monthly um, communication with clients and then a quarterly uh, communication that is, is more detailed and then the quarterly investment webinars as well because if they understand the themes and the, the macro themes as to what's going on, when things are executed, there are no big crazy surprises. So because we've already talked about a certain theme playing out in investment markets, and then it is executed upon. So uh, at the moment, there's been no big surprises, which would be nice if it stayed that way. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, um, in communicating to, you know, large groups at scale and, you know, 500 odd, you know, client groups, um, talk to us about how important um, digital adoption, um, technology, um, how important is that? Is the role that technology plays in communicating to that many people at once? Yeah, re- really important. So we use uh, MailChimp through XPlan and that's been to set up. It was relatively messy to set up, but now that it's all set up, it's running quite well. So it's it's really important that clients, all clients get the same information at the same time. Also, because we offer a number of different managed account solutions to clients, it was important within our software that we could flag the client for which particular communication that they get. So all of our clients get the same macro view of the world, of what we think the world is looking like, and then underneath that it's tailored to which um, investment service they're part of. Well, so that was, as you mentioned, that's quite an intense um, setup, um, yes. but but the, the benefit of that is, is pretty pretty decent, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's right. And I think it results in more customised communication, which, you know, is important from, from how the client feels when, when they receive that. Yeah. And do you find that that um, communication is a is a, probably a key to um, clients talking, other clients, talking to other clients about you or referring other clients to you? Definitely. Definitely. We've had about 30% of our new business this whole, the last 12 months has been from client referrals. And uh, we're quite surprised by that given the extent of change we've put these clients through. So we're pleased with that and would like to increase that where possible in the next 12 months. But um, a lot of it yeah, comes from, from that communication, we believe. David, thank you for joining me again. We are up to step 11 of the 12-step process. We're nearly at the end. Uh, let's talk about the, the concept around um, client communications and, and uh, you know, the user experience has been uh, highly focused on over the last few years as we got that UX term came out of the tech world. Um, tell us a little bit about your business and, and, and the communications it sends and the, and the ongoing information it's providing to clients. 
Sure. So obviously, uh, through platform, you get a an app um, as a starting point, and all that communication um, kind of gets feeded through that. But the key thing for us um, is our communication program um, that we roll out, and we do schedule it. Um, we, we map it out for the full year, and we say what bits of communication we're sending out at each point in time. And we do that at the start of each year. We use Campaign Monitor um, to roll our digital uh, marketing communication, or not marketing, I should say, but our digital communication. And what you'll find is our at any one time, our read rate is about 85%. That's because people are extremely engaged. And we've done things where we've sent mass emails out before and you know the engagement might be 5%. Um, whereas ours, everyone aims to read it. They may not read it one month, but then they might read it in the next, right? Um, but they definitely are reading these documents and we can see that right on the back end. Um, so whether we don't necessarily need to ask our clients whether they like it, they're repeatedly reading it. So um, that's a fantastic bit of validation for us. Um, so using some bit of uh, technology there, um, I believe is really important. Also, the look and feel, Um, if you're into branding and those type of things, you want something that has a a great interface and that looks slick. Um, For us, we want it to to look slick and professional. Um, So Campaign Monitor is great in terms of providing a really good interface. You can make really high resolution and good quality uh, images um, in a lot of the documentation that we sent out. So, And it looks good on a mobile tablet or your standard email on your desktop. So that, that, that's a little bit of an insight into how we run our um, communication program. Yeah, I love, I love the engagement rate um, from the clients. It certainly is amazing giving in those sorts of open rates when it comes to sending out content and or information. Congratulations mm-hmm. on that. Um, and that just goes to show, I guess, that uh, that's a real you know combined effort between those ongoing regular com, um, communications as well as you know the regular review meetings. Spot on. Mel, thanks for joining me again. We are in step 11 of our 12-step process, and we're talking about the service enhancement. Obviously, we've been through the process of making uh, some changes at this point, um, and we're getting into the concept of, you know, how do we actually service the client in this new world? Uh, tell us what you're seeing when people come through this process and it's, and it's all new to them. I actually see people skip this step a little bit too frequently, and this is where, you know, your rubber is hitting the road from the client delivery perspective. So this one is really vital. Um, I'd say it's really important here to look back at what you were trying to achieve, what that value proposition is for the client, looking at all the client touch points, looking at it from their view. How are they interacting with you? How are they receiving value from you? What did you want to be giving them in this? And then how do you rebuild your processes accordingly? And a key thing for me here is make sure you're actually documenting these processes. Make sure it's written down and it's not war and peace, right? It's literally just a document saying each month we're going to do X, Y, Z. We get this communication from here. This is the system and process we're pushing it out for through who is responsible for that in our office and, and making sure you're leveraging all of the amazing material that your investment partner will be giving you. You know, gone are the days where you're rewriting this. How are you getting the information that you're paying for and getting it out to your clients. Yeah, this is this is probably one that you you have to rely on your investment partner to tell you what you you could be doing at the beginning. But then I guess after you know three, six, eight months, twelve months, you really just need to sort of keep, keep reviewing this process and going, all right, what are we sending out? Is it resonating? Do we need to, you know, uh, make improvements or changes or you know reduce stuff or whatever it might be. Yeah, I, I really encourage you in the planning stage with the investment partners and when you're kind of interviewing for an investment partner, make sure you're asking them what type of communication and collateral they'll be providing you and at what frequency. Typically, it'll be in uh, you know a white paper format or an editable format. So, you can then pick and choose how you're sending this out and distributing it to your different client bases. So, you might want to be sending out – you know, when, when they do an update to the portfolios, they'll be writing about that post and letting you know. You might choose to send that out every single time. You might choose to put that in a newsletter. You might do monthly marketing, uh, market updates, sorry. So, you should have in the first phases a clear understanding of what your investment partner is going to be providing you. But again, to your point, it needs to be effective. So, there's no point having a very elaborate marketing 
and communication plan if it's not being opened, if it's not being read, you know, if it's yeah. not hitting the mark. And some of this, I guess, is around setting client expectations too as to like we've got this new process and this is what's going to happen, um, maybe under, under, under promising and over-delivering, but, you know, certainly uh, not, um, not just, you know, not having that communication with the client about what you're going to provide and what value that's in it for them. And ask them, you know, did you receive our last monthly update? Noticed you didn't read it. Um, you know, some clients do not care. They don't want, they want to know that you're doing it and they won't read it. And that's okay as well. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Step 11 of the process. We're really getting into the client service enhancement or what the new client services is going to be. Uh, talk to us about what you're seeing um, with some of the practices that you've seen come through this journey and, and how they've then redesigned their ongoing service um, to their clients. Thanks, Basil. This is the sort of exciting bit. Once they've actually decided to adopt and we're now implementing, we get to come in and really change the way in which you know, they're communicating with their clients and servicing their clients. And so uh, we will sit down and work with them on their sort of CRM you know, and so say we'll leverage the technology within their business to deliver a lot of the insights. Uh, and so you know, we produce real-time portfolio changes, monthly market insights, quarterly portfolio reports which they can white label and so we sort of make sure they segment their client base um, and work with them on understanding you know the communication strategy and how that can be delivered and so really what we find if you if you adopt in full like all of the service and reporting what we see is then the, the advisors don't have to turn up to review meetings and um, have you know market presentations or investment related reviews they're really turning up to talk about you know strategic advice the relationship um, because all of the investment-related communication and work has already been delivered on a consistent basis in real time. Uh, it also helps, we found, you know, 12 months later, they turn up and there might be 16 or 20 different bits of, you know, investment-related communication sitting on the client file. So when they're ticking the FDS box, they've actually got more communication, more contact points sitting in the client file than they had in the previous 12 months. So that's been a real, um, a real important sort of advancement for them as well. Uh, and then the ability to sort of focus on more high-level, you know, marketing activities, whether that's through seminars or webinars or, or other ways of engaging the market now that they've got more time and, um, you know, more help on that front. Yeah, I also think from the marketing point of view, once you've got your value proposition down pat and you know that you're there for a strategic reason and, and, and you know, you have a team for, team for tactical stuff and um, as I, I mentioned before that, you know, getting down in the nitty-gritty of stuff, you've got a team of people that do that. Um you're able to communicate that a lot better and then if you're able to communicate it a lot better, then you're able to – your marketing picks up in that respect. Absolutely, absolutely. We spend a lot of time trying to set the narrative and so, again, I think a lot of the communication and particularly in relation to investments in advice world is quite reactive. Something's generally happened, often it's not good and so the communication strategy becomes quite defensive. We see, you know, lots and lots of pickup in communication when markets go bad because advisors are encouraging people to sit pat, don't worry, don't change your strategy. Whereas what we've been able to deliver for our clients, because we have discretion, we have, have an active asset allocation process that's focused on risk management, the ability to actually get ahead of the curve and make decisions to protect portfolios, provide proactive communication through to the clients means that, um, you know, they're getting less calls, um, you know, less emails uh, and more proactive communication. But again, it's sort of that narrative is set, the theme is set, the clients are happy, the advisor understands, you know, where they are and how the portfolios are positioned. And then when we hit, you know, bad patches in, in markets, you know, there's sort of less reactive running around chasing our tail or trying to protect um, the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love uh, I love proactive comms rather than reactive. Um, <laughs> how, how important of that, of course, then is digital engagement and technology in the process? It's really important. So one of the big benefits we find, and again, in assessing, you know, what is the right platform partner potentially is you know, what is the what is the app, essentially, the client-facing app that they have. Um, that they provide because, again, managed accounts and the transparency, if we're setting the sort of market narrative, if we're providing, you know, real-time communications relating to changes, you want the clients to be able to look in the app and actually see the effect on their portfolio. So really what we're trying to do is join the dots between what they might hear on the nightly news with the communication that the advisor is now in turn sending to them 
both from a markets perspective but also an underlying portfolio perspective, what is actually going on in their portfolios. And I think that is one of the huge benefits of managed accounts. If you're in a big industry fund, you get this quite opaque, not very transparent annual report in July that says, hey, I've got a number. Well, you don't really know what's going on under the hood. Whereas in the managed account model, it's proactive, it's transparent, uh, and it should actually increase you know, the education of the client and the engagement of the client. And, and ultimately, that is what helps the client stay on the journey through good times and bad, is if they understand what they're invested in uh, and they understand what the, the strategy is, then they're more likely to stick to their, their goals. They're also more likely to save more because they understand they're, com- they're committing more capital because they believe in it. And that's really powerful from a long-term wealth creation perspective. Simone, thanks for joining us again. And in this step 12 of the process, we're really looking at the in the past and reviewing some of the numbers and figures um, for for advisors that are um, thinking about the transition or transitioning. We're talking about the, you know, after 12 months and you've spoken to every client or whatever it might be past the transition. Um, you mentioned before, you know, percentages of clients getting in to, um, you know, the, the, the MDA structure. Um, what, what else are you seeing with regards to now that all of your clients are sort of transition to the structure are you uh, is the sma got a percentage or what are your what are, what are you seeing um yeah so we're at about 50 percent um transition of our existing client base into a managed account solution um it's a bit um i suppose it's a bit gray for us because we transition to our own afsl at the same time as launching a new managed account our profit as a business you know fell as a percentage wise to sort of you know 20 percent EBIT sort of thing in that in that year, but we're looking to push that to 30, 35%. So it's a little bit muddied with the fact that we had to invest heavily in our license, invest heavily in infrastructure. Um, but we expect coming off the back of this that we're laying the foundations for exponential growth. So we're not looking to acquire um, businesses at this point because we want to get our own business working very well. We've definitely freed up advisor capacity to the extent that we have one or two advisors in the business that can double their client numbers, whereas previously they would not have had the ability to do that. So that has a direct impact on profit because our costs aren't going up, but that advisor can double the number of clients that they can see. So getting the foundations right will have an impact on future profit, but for that one or two years, it certainly was a bit of a holding pattern. But in light of the 20-year plan, it was something that we were quite prepared and happy to invest in for the future success of the business. Yeah. Now, um, previously, one of the other conversations that we had, you talked about, um, uh, you know, then a metric being um, how many um, clients each particular advisor can serve, and and you sort of, you know, the hundred numbers being around. Um, I don't know. It's sort of a nice round. Whether it's a nice round number or it's practical, <laughs> or whether it's a benchmark we put in our heads. But you you you've said that you've been able to push that up to one fifty. Yes. Yes, we certainly have. And you know, for advisors now, it's all about finding clients that they want to take on as well. So we went through a lot of, a lot of, um, I suppose, stress in terms of setting up the AFSL, but now it's about advisors being really confident in the service offering and saying, this is who Annex Wealth is, this is what we believe in, this is what we can do. And they're actually finding that they're attracting the kind of client that they also want to work with long-term. So I think it's had that, that impact as well. Um, for internal team members, as I mentioned, our, our person, young person who's been with us for five years, allowing him to be freed up from the implementation burden of doing switches and doing records of advice, et cetera, and allowing him to focus on more complex areas has really freed him up to do his professional year, which he started in April this year. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I, I, I love those success, success stories of people, yes. more more advisors coming through. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the impacts of for the staff with regards to, you know, some of the ongoing or the new obligations with reporting and those sorts of things, how that's, uh, you know, that, that any savings or cost savings or time savings there? In terms of the, the new um, product provider consents and internal consents, yes. uh, I think it really helped us the fact that we've got clear client segments. We, we've now really working through these, these projects. We, we understand who our clients are, what fees they pay and what service we provide to them. So that really helped. We, um, we, we know um, so much more about our business than we did previously. So 
allowing us to have that information then was another project in itself in terms of just rolling out how we would be communicating these requirements and, and changes. So we're using technology wherever we can to do that via digital consents. But because the advisors are also interacting with the clients so frequently, it, it then becomes part of a standard agenda because we have a, a business-wide agenda that we have for review meetings and it becomes part of that discussion. So building that in via templates and processes has just been another thing. So I think sometimes going through so much change, it gets you ready for just accepting the fact that there are always changes and if you approach it with the same mentality, the same methodology, you can get the outcome that that you need to get. So no different to educating internal staff for the managed account, having a set process having a project timeline, all of those things have been consistent across across all of the changes that we face and and whatever it may be in the future. Yeah, fantastic. Now, let's have a quick uh, chat about the future. What does the future hold for, for you and your business? What's sort of the next five, 10-year plan? To continue to grow, to continue to grow organically, and, and we'll do that through our referral partnerships that we have in place, but also through digital marketing. So it's for us, it's about... Um, getting our, our own house in order and then building our brand so that we can go to the marketplace and seek out those clients that, that fit the service model that we have. So they're really the two main areas is organic growth and, and the digital marketing uh, that we're, we will be undertaking in the next financial year. Fantastic. Love the digital marketing space. If you've got a story to tell, it's a great space to tell it. And uh, yes. and by the way, thank you for coming and, and telling your story with us um, and sharing it with advisors. I really appreciate it. Um, Simone, if somebody else wants to continue the conversation with you and get hold of you, what's the best way they can find you? They can find me via a website, so annexwealth.com.au. All the contact numbers and email addresses are there. Fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Fraser. David, thanks for joining us again. We are rounding out this uh, this topic series around the transition, uh, business transitions, and of course, the the best part about any business transition is the you know the the review afterwards, the post, and 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 seeing what the numbers were, and and going through the the business impact. Uh, tell tell us for you, what's the impact been to your business? Oh, geez, where do I start? It's it's been profound to say the least. Um, importantly, I think the core thing that it's really improved is we have a clear um, methodology, process, and philosophy around the investment piece, and that's something that not only can I communicate to, but our entire staff and advisors can communicate to, and hopefully also our our clients can communicate. In terms of it gives us greater confidence that what we're delivering is of quality and it's given us that, you know, that strength within our business to really go out there and feel like we're competing with the best of them. And we're winning fantastic clients. We're winning really big clients that if I looked back five years ago, we just were not getting in front of. So it's really empowered us to become a much uh, better business. We're humble enough to realize that we can't be the best at everything. So why not bring in great quality people? And that's just highlighted a whole range of things that we just weren't aware of before. So you don't know what you don't know sometimes. Um, and we just feel like it's a whole new world out there that's exciting for us and that we can pretty much tackle anything. Um, so that, that's been the key thing to us. A, a side benefit, uh, obviously, the efficiency. Um, we, we, we feel like we've really become a far more efficient business. There are a lot of hurdles outside of the investment process. We feel like we've nailed the investment process, but it's the other inefficiencies that now we can focus on. So it's not like we've, we've clocked it there. Um, so there's still plenty of things we're working on. Overall, we also do have the confidence from a business strategic perspective that we can integrate other businesses. We probably would not feel that confident if we hadn't have gone down this journey and tried to integrate other businesses. Um, and then long-term, uh, hopefully, when you know other people look at our business and they see our business, they may see um, there's uh, a more valuable business there. Hopefully, it does add um, some kind of additional multiple in the way we um, – uh, operate our business and people see our business. So um, if we can be a really quality turnkey style business in the back end, we hope that that actually adds value to our um, underlying value as a business. 
when compared to, to others. Yeah, David, thanks so much. I really love the um, the way you present that as, you know, the, the, the biggest value value for you is that intangible value of confidence and strength and, you know, really being able to articulate what you stand for to your clients and your staff and, uh, and to anybody else. Uh, thank you so much for being part of this series. If somebody wants to continue this conversation with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? I think for now, LinkedIn. Um, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll uh, endeavor to um, answer any questions or take any phone calls, but that's probably the best point. We are going through a bit of a website revamp, so you can definitely catch me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And it's David Maloney, CFP, uh, if you're looking on on, uh, on LinkedIn, because there's a few of you around, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, just uh, I thought I was original when I did it at the start, but um, yeah, it seems to be plenty of people doing it these days, but yes. Wonderful. Thank you, David. Really appreciate your time. <laughs> My pleasure. Now, thanks so much for joining us in this process. Uh, this well, this podcast, I should say, we're through, when we were going through the process of change management, uh, and particularly bringing managed accounts into a business, such a, a big, uh, well, it's a fairly big step. Um, tell us post transition. We're talking about after the fact, and 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 let's just quickly start with how long has this taken us to get here? Like, I mean, if somebody's got, um, you know from the very first step through to this step, um, what sort of timeframes are you seeing? I've seen this done in two to three months or two years plus. Um, so it can take as long or as little time as possible. My general advice would be to make this as quick as possible. Prolonging this prolongs the strain on your business as well. So my recommendation is to get in and get it done. Um, you also want to avoid not uh, not gaining all the benefits of this. You know, one of the worst things you can do when going and, op- uh, you know, adopting new technology, new processes, new portfolios is ending up with half your clients there, half your clients somewhere else because you kind of lost momentum. And now you're actually at a higher capacity than you were before. It's, it's the opposite of what you wanted. So I think post transition, if you've, been listening to the podcast back in episode one, it was where do you want to end up? What are the KPIs? What do you want to be looking at? So regularly checking that, you know, the same way you have investment committee meetings, be tracking the KPIs of this project through the project and then at completion. So have we actually achieved the milestones that we wanted? What were the financial KPIs that we wanted to achieve here? And then if not, why? Yeah, I, I really resonate with the concept of momentum because you know, it's, it, this, is, this is kind of like one step back, two steps forward type thing. And, and if you're not taking the, if you don't, you know, get those two steps forward happening, you, you're still one step back. So I guess it does, um, you know, it does eat into some of the profitability of the concept and the um, uh, and efficiencies. Um, now, what I want to talk about quickly about effectiveness um, and, and client experience. What, what are you seeing with um, firms that have transitioned with regards to, you know, client satisfaction or um, you know, how their clients are feeling about it? Overwhelmingly, you'll get calls from advisors saying, you know, oh, even this client who I didn't think would want it is wanted in and everyone wants it and everyone's loving it and loving the communication, loving the interaction. I've got some firms that the investment managers will come in as well directly with the client's do some functions where they're doing up market and portfolio updates. And that's really cool for the clients because they're sitting there with professional investment managers and getting these updates and seeing how their portfolios are working. So it really changes the service that they're able to get. Um, another thing, notably, clients, despite what we think, don't want 100-page documents every time they come in to see us. They really don't. So um, it's been very interesting for me post-transition seeing, you know, we often talk about the time that a managed account will save, you know, per week, et cetera, for advisors. Um, but I think what you can't, I guess, put a measure to is the, the mental capacity that you gain when that part of your business is being taken over as well and then what you can then address. Also a lot of confidence in I've just executed this cool project, what else can I do? So you see advisors starting to turn their mind to a lot more new projects and a lot more new technology. So it almost gives them momentum to be tackling other areas of their business, which I think is really cool. Definitely very cool. Mel, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us about this. Uh, If someone wants to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? 
Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so reach out to me and I'll come back to you straight away. Thank you so much for uh, generously giving of your time and experience. Thank you for having me and looking forward to hearing from anybody about this journey. I really enjoy it and, and think it's a great path for firms. Tom, thanks for joining us again. And the last step, step 12 of this change management process. Uh, now, of course, in any any uh, change management process, the review or the looking back or the, uh, um, you know, the post um Post-transformation uh, review is really important and to understand, you know, we did all this thing and, and what's the what has the business impact been. Um, from your observation, what are you seeing practices doing in this space? Fortunately, we've got clients that have, you know, transitioned now over a number of years and are well past that sort of 80% conversion rate. So they're seeing the material benefits from the transition and the partnership with us. Firstly, the staff satisfaction internally, the staff are more focused and less burdened by, you know, somewhat manual administration tasks and rebalancing and, and filling out spreadsheets to work out what the client's portfolio should look like and, and more focused on high value work. So that's been really important. Um, second, the, the sort of perception of the business to market, they now, you know, have developed and um, built out a you know, demonstrated track record of investment performance and service, which is helping them go out to referral partners or new clients or actually receive more referrals because they've got a, a really well-articulated um, investment process and, and philosophy. Uh, and also more referrals is good, more staff satisfaction. Uh, the numbers that our clients give us, are those that have fully adopted, they think it's about 30% uh, essentially capacity within their business. They haven't, not one of our clients has let anyone go as a result of the efficiency dividend. I think that's a big misconception, but they've just got more satisfied clients, but more, and sorry, more satisfied staff within their business and more capacity for growth. And because they've developed a really strong investment proposition uh, that, that their clients are now giving them more referrals, they're just driving the business growth, um, you know, and, and using up that capacity for, for ultimately a better business. So that, that's really powerful. Yeah, it certainly is. And I always um, come back to the efficiency gains that are, you know, like the, we should be efficient by now, surely. Like uh, the amount of uh, the amount of resources available to financial services businesses to not be efficient is um, is not not a great result. Thirty mm. percent um, capacity is quite a quite a leap in in a firm's you know ability to grow. T- tell us about some of the, the the results that you're seeing out of the back of that, and does that mean thirty percent more clients? Certainly, capacity for thirty percent more clients. So they're and they're achieving that through spending more time uh, on you know, working with referral partners on, on more webinars, um, more content. We're seeing a, a pickup in digital uh, marketing uh, activities from those clients as well, uh, which is really powerful. But also probably capturing, I think, more of the client holistically the client relationship so maybe dealing with higher net worth clients and a bigger share of their wallet but also having time then to engage with their children and making sure the next generation is coming through so capacity to deal with sort of a bigger piece of the total household wealth as well um, is really important. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on was the client experience. That's obviously a big part of it. Looking back, you know, was was there a, um, um, uh, an engagement with the client that was at a specific, specific level? And we didn't sort of cover this in one of the earlier steps, but maybe surveying clients beforehand and then afterwards, and and looking at their net promoter score or their or their scores in a way um, to see what the client experience improvements have been. I don't know whether we've had explicit sort of net promoter score surveys done, but certainly the the feedback we get, our clients are nice enough to share the feedback that their their clients are giving them about the service, and it's overwhelmingly positive. They enjoy the level of activity they're seeing in the portfolios. In fact, sort of going, well, it makes sense to us. You know, the markets are moving fast, and actually more more needs to be done, and more is being done. So they feel like they're getting better value for for money. They're um, they're not paying more. Uh, and they really enjoy the communications. And so they've sort of, the advisor and the clients are having deeper, richer conversations around what's going on in markets, despite the fact that, you know, there's a there's a partner there actually making the decisions. Uh, and they feel, you know, they feel at ease, you know, they're really, they're, they're and I think the, the net result, what's the best net promoter score is really, are they referring more of their friends to the advisors? And overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. 
And how and how are advisors in that situation where they um, where things obviously happen in markets, and then um, are, are you are you having conversations with them that allows them to have conversations with clients, or what's the sort of the, the chain of information? Is it going direct to clients, or is it going through the advisor generally? No, we never communicate directly with the clients, other than if they're tuned into a webinar or a seminar that we'll be co-hosting with the advisor. So. We produce all of the content in real time and send it to the advisor and it's up for the advisor again to then disseminate that information to their client base, whether that's verbally, whether that's via their CRM. Uh, again, you know, the advisor is the trusted source of information and, and they deliver that to their clients in the format that you know their, their clients expect. And so our job is to make the advisor's uh, job easier and make them look smarter and we do that by providing you know real-time information to them that they can in turn share with their clients. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the series. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you about the 12-step process. Um, if advisors want to get hold of the 12-step process, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or one of your team um, and uh, grab a copy of this uh, 12-step process? Thanks, Fraser. Yeah, you can either come to me directly, Tom Schubert, uh, T. Schubert at drumandcp.com or our Head of Strategic Growth, Katrina Wortley, C. Wortley at drumandcp.com or just sign up to our insights at the, uh, on the website. Fantastic. And the website address? www.drumandcp.com. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Fraser. Mm-hmm.